excited. I have Christina Walker on the podcast today. Hello. (laughs) We are so lucky to have her on. She has just so many qualifications and years of experience, and she's going to answer a ton of burning questions for us. Um, So for starters, she is a licensed master social work. And she's the executive director of the third district guardian ad litem program in Idaho. And she's also a group facilitator at the Nampa Family Justice Center for women who are affected by domestic violence, family violence, or sexual assault. Uh, With that being said, there's so much I want to talk to you about, um, but let's just start easy. How did you get into this work? Tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, um, I have, um, for my entire adult working career, really worked to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And that started out when I worked in animal welfare for about 10 years. And then I got pregnant with my twins and uh, moved to a place where things were a little quieter, a little smaller, and I was with family. And um, I was asked by a local um, agency to be their parent advocate and parent educator. Okay. Um, and I kind of thought of that as a translator. So I was kind of working on the other side of things. Um, now I'm working with children, obviously, but then I was working with the parents. And the problem basically was, is the Department of Health and Welfare would give them a list of things to do. It's called their case plan. Um, and they really didn't get it. It would say things like you have to get a job and they would think I, I mean, if I, if I could get a job that easily, I probably would have done that. And so there needed to be some translation as to how to go about these things, what it meant, um, what, what was really being asked of them. Um, I also became a, a becoming a love and logic parent facilitator and a school-based mentor. Okay. And so I was kind of doing a lot of social work but did not have a social work degree. So I thought maybe I should get one of those. And uh, yeah, went back and got my uh, social work degree and then went on to grad school, got my master's. And um, now you're absolutely right. Uh, I uh, facilitate groups um, for women affected by domestic violence, familial violence and sexual assaults. And I'm the executive director of the third district guardian ad litem program. I've also been uh, volunteer guardian ad litem um, with a few different programs um, and a foster parent. So I've been around. You're a jack of all trades. You've done it all. <laughs> um, first, how do you juggle everything that you have going on? Um, you know, I think when you feel really passionate about it, it doesn't feel like juggling. The time it feels like juggling, but the, the effort and the, the groups of people that I advocate for or work with, uh, just feels good. It feels like what I need to be doing. I mean, I guess that's all you can ask for. Yeah. This is definitely difficult work. And I think that a lot of people can't stay in it for a long time. And you clearly have a passion and have learned how to juggle like the emotional aspect of it mm-hmm. how has that that's, <laughs> that's pretty tricky but 
this is what works for me. Different things work for different people. Um, but for me, I'm good at closing one door and then opening another door. So um, it, very similar to compartmentalizing. I, When I leave work, I leave work. And when I go from one of my jobs to the other job, I... I leave the first job and I'm, I can be really clear on for whom I'm advocating at this point. Um, so for example, one of the, the top reasons why children are brought into foster care is because of domestic violence in the home. And I'm really clear uh, when I'm working with moms who have been in domestic violence situations and have stayed in the home even with children, I know why they did that. Um, I understand that completely. And sometimes it's for everyone's safety. Sometimes there doesn't seem to be any choices. 100% when I'm with the, my domestic violence um, victims, I get that. However, when I'm working with the children for whom we advocate, I have to, to wear a different hat and say, um, we have, your mom has to be able to keep you safe in the home, right. uh, regardless of the issues that are there that make it hard for her to do that. But I think I can come at that with more knowledge and compassion and experience, but those are still two very different hats. And I, I've just gotten good at shutting one door and opening another. And that's what that's what's kept me relatively. So guardian ad litems and court appointed special advocates are not necessarily well known, not just within the system, but also like by the average person. Can you explain the role that these people play? Sure. So the those two terms are often used interchangeably because the job responsibilities are basically interchangeable. A guardian ad litem, um, however, can sometimes and in some jurisdictions uh, be required to be an attorney. Okay. Um, and a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate, is always a volunteer or support staff person. So um, in Idaho, guardians ad litem and CASA are interchangeable. Guardians do not have to be attorneys. Uh, we don't have any attorneys on our staff. They can make a lot more money being attorneys. Okay. Um, the difference is um, we are advocates and attorneys are attorneys. Mm -hmm. And uh, they weren't trained to be advocates and they don't really have time to be advocates. Uh, it's very typical that if the child has an attorney as a guardian, then that person will spend about 15 minutes with that child before court. Uh, there are some exceptions to that rule, and that's always wonderful when, when an attorney has more time to spend with the child, but typically that's how that works out. But what we do is um, we really uh, are here to do an independent investigation of what brought the child into care and then the circumstances in which the child lived and now lives in foster care. So we really um, learn as much as we can about the kiddo uh, and engage with them. So we do regular visits. We're required to visit at least every 30 days. Um, typically, we uh, will visit 
a little bit more than that, but again, inserting ourselves into into this child's life in a way that might right. become too much, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then we collaborate with other agencies, um, m- mostly uh, and most specifically uh, workers at the Department of Health and Welfare. And based on all of that information, we make recommendations to the court. So ultimately, the judge looks at our court report and the Department of Health and Welfare's court report. And based on those those two reports makes his or her decision. Okay. Do you feel like one or the other holds more weight or do you feel like it just depends? I think it depends on um, the program, the guardian ad litem program or the CASA program um, and the quality and quantity of work that they're able to do. Also the local department of health and welfare um, agency and the quality and quantity of work that they're able to do. I have noticed um, here that, um, so when I sit in court sometimes, um, I'll notice that the report from the department, um, so I have to go back one minute. I listened Mm -hmm. to your interview with Rachel, it was excellent. And she, I think was, uh, had a really good grasp on some of the positives and negatives of the Department of Health and Welfare when it comes to uh, working with abused and neglected children. And one of the things she said was, wow, it's just too much. We can't do what is expected of us in the hours that are expected of us. So, um, and that's because, so right here, right now in Idaho, um, caseworkers have 18 to 20-ish cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what that looks like is there's just not enough time or energy to devote to that. And so when we listen to their reports, it says things like the kids are doing good in school. But our volunteer who only has one or two cases, they can have as many as five, but I don't think that we have anyone that has five right now, okay. um, but they can never have more than that. They have more time and energy and sort of passion uh, to put into these cases. And so their report says something like, well, the child does uh, has brought up her grade point average, but is still failing two classes um, and has had um, some behavioral issues. So we are recommending a tutor and um, some uh, uh therapy or um, at school counseling. Um, so the, the reports can look very different. And of course, the judge hears that and would put more weight into the report that is more accurate and up to date and detailed. Not so <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. Okay, yeah. And I mean, it's nice because you've kind of made it seem like the guardian ad litem can have more time with the kids and because Mm -hmm. they have a smaller caseload. And so in your guys' situation, they are usually volunteers. I know um, where I'm at, like our current guardian ad litem is an attorney. Okay. And so how does that work in terms of caseload? Do you know? I don't, (coughs) excuse me. I do know that they, um, uh, again, just simply would not have the time and energy and the, they might have the heart for advocacy, 
but not the training. So to become a guardian ad litem or a CASA, you have 30 hours of training. It's similar to becoming a foster parent. Um, then you have to, to have a certain number of continuing education units. Um, here it's 12. And um, we offer a lot of additional uh, trainings and information. And they have a supervisor, and it's a supervisor in both sense of the word. So I'm a social worker. We always like to have a supervisor because um, sometimes uh, things might just get a little out of hand for you. Maybe you get too personally involved or not personally involved enough, or you, you're just operating outside of your scope of knowledge, and you just need a supervisor to run things through. Um, and then also to supervise them to make sure that things are happening as they, they should be happening and to just come up with like, you know, did you think of this? Did you talk to this person? Did you ask this question? And uh, so I believe that the system works much better if the CASA or guardian ad litem is a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, however, since we are not attorneys and we are operating in the court system, we're signed by the judge. Um, we are assigned an attorney, not for the child, but for us. Mm. So we can turn to them. So we do all the work and we turn to them and say legally, so here's our worries, our issues, what can we do legally? And they file motions for us. Um, They call for additional information um, and have the full weight of their legal training to add to the full weight of our advocacy. Okay. And it's nice because then you guys are kind of protected. Is that true? Well, we're, we are um, in our court order. So again, we are at when a child is first brought into care at their very first hearing, it's called the shelter care hearing, which is when it's decided if the child will be, you know, brought into care, brought into shelter. Um, we are assigned by the judge at that time and we're given a court order that tells us what we can do and what we have to do. And, uh, that does, uh, hold us, uh, so we are not liable. Okay. Yeah. And it gives us pretty broad scope. And in some ways we have more, we have broader scope than the department of health and welfare. So we can do. Um, unannounced home visits, which is super handy, although you'd be surprised at how many people, like even when you have an appointment, they still have a lot of alcohol sitting out, sometimes drugs, like sometimes they absolutely not clean the house. Um, But most of the time, most people are clever enough to be like, well, we need to, you know, get this in shape before this person shows up. But we can go in without telling them uh, so just show up at the doorstep and you get a really full complete picture in that instance and the department is very much encouraged not to do that okay Um, and the same thing is true of uh, using social media so Mm -hmm. social media and the department again is is really encouraged strongly not to do that um, but we think uh, that taken not as complete in and to itself, their social media can really in- inform a lot of what's going on. So um, we do get to do some things that the department doesn't do. 
And we think those things can be very helpful in protecting children. Yeah, I mean, job interviewers oftentimes now are checking social media. So there's no reason why, you know, someone who's involved in this very intricate and volatile situation shouldn't be looking at well, social media. Yeah, I agree. Just it just kind of makes sense. I I try to, you know, be cognizant of what I put out there into the world and uh I understand that I have to take responsibility for what I do put out there. And I don't, I just don't think that's asking too much of people. I definitely agree. I think that's great to hear. I'd never heard that before. Um, And I also wasn't really under the impression that guardian ad litems almost did like house checks. Well, sure. So um, what we like to do, so we're involved in the case every single month, which of course only makes sense. Um, so every month we have contact with the child mm-hmm. in a, in a very perfect world. We would have like one month we would visit the child in, um, his or her foster home. The next month would visit the child in his or her school. Maybe the next month during a visit with his or her parents, um, and, and just try to get a really full picture. Um, and, and we do not, here's the other beautiful thing about us, because I, when I was listening to Rachel talk about, uh, the bureaucracy and, and just some of the internal, uh, policies and procedures uh-huh. that, that really sort of dampened the advocacy part of this, yes. um, I, I really felt for her and I'm so thrilled that, um, so we're a small agency. There's only eight staff, okay. um, which, by the way, is double what it was when I came on board two years oh, ago wow. to this particular agency. So we're a very tiny staff. We have about 80 volunteers. Um, in uh, 2019, we advocated for 753 children. That's incredible. Just in, in our district. Um, so there's certainly a lot of work to be done. We definitely need more volunteers, but... Because we're small, we just don't have a lot of bureaucracy and our overriding um, goal and mandate are the question that we ask about everything. Our North Star question is, what is in the best interest of the child? So in my humble opinion, the Department of Health and Welfare is very family focused. They'll tell you that they're family focused, but what that means is focused on the parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that what gets lost often is the children who were victimized by those parents. So we're not here to reunify families. Uh, we're also not here to pull children away from families. We're here to do what's in the best interest of that child. And absolutely, sometimes reunification is in the best interest of the child. And sometimes, absolutely, it is not in the child's best interest to be reunified. And that's such a clear focus for us that it makes our jobs simpler in that way. Not easy. Don't, don't think I'm saying that, Uh, but it makes it simple. You know, you just ask that question and the answer guides you as opposed to, well, but what about the, the parent and the, this and the, that and the family. And, and uh, so I, I really, when she was saying 
she said something about she really wanted to work with children and help children and that working at the department was really the only way to do that. And I was thinking, no, thank goodness it isn't. <laughs> right. Um, it takes, you know, the old thing, it takes a village. So it takes a few agencies doing their job the best way they can to make this happen as, as well as it does. And I'd argue it, it doesn't often happen as, as well as we'd hope, but mm-hmm. Yeah. So it takes a lot of us, but I I would really rather be doing this. So it's interesting to me that your guiding question is what's the best interest of the child? Because I know we're in different states and, you know, there's probably different jurisdiction and whatnot in place. But that being said, I've gotten the impression that in Washington state, the guardian ad litem is operating in the best interest of the child within the policy of the state. So very much still following along with, you know, for example, we're very much parents' rights state. It's very much like reunifying children. And I feel like the guardian ad litems are still kind of following along that path rather than being totally best interest of the child. I... I'm wondering if part of that isn't that you have lawyers doing this and they are sticking to the legal minimum. So that's what the department is required to stick to legal minimums. And let me assure you that when it comes to children and their safety and well-being, those minimums couldn't be more minimal. Yeah. And um, the, the craziest things are allowed by law that any reasonable person would say that's not okay. Right. Um, but we are not, um, we're obviously concerned about the law. Like, let's just be very clear. Um, yeah. But we can aim higher than that legal minimum. And I'm wondering if because the guardians are the, uh, in your state, which is our neighboring mm-hmm. state, so we have a lot mm-hmm. in common, mm-hmm. um, uh, are really working towards those sort of same legal minimums, not understanding that that's not their role. Their role is child advocacy and best interest of the child. Yeah. 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 But we have, we're kind of a small, powerful team where we work and we're super clear on that, you know, guiding question. And uh, we do a lot of hard work and we, honestly have uh, fairly regular disagreements with the Department of Health and Welfare as to what uh, is is the way to proceed with this child. Um, And we do have to keep it really clear that we are going to provide our evidence and information in our report, and then it's going to be up to the judge. But we are a separate independent agency and we do our own independent investigations and make our independent recommendations, even though we do meet with the department. Um, we're supposed to meet with them more than we do. Um, sometimes we're left out of that loop. And by sometimes I mean a lot of the time. (laughs) We're left out of that loop either intentionally or accidentally. Um, but it's better if we could work together because then at least 
when we meet together in court on this case, it's not like, what? I had no idea. Um, and we, we keep in mind that we, they're doing their job. Their job is different than our job. Mm-hmm. And then the judge does her job. And then that's where we are. Sometimes we really hate it. Sometimes we think it works out perfectly. But either way, um, we're, there's two separate goals at work. Their goal is primarily reunification. They're very family focused. Um, and they, in my humble opinion, it often gets overlooked what's in the best interest of the child. They just don't have a lot of protections. They have our little agency trying to stand in the gap for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I just think that it's, it's at this point, the pendulum has swung so far from being a child welfare agency and child protection to being family welfare and family protection. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around sometimes. I mean, honestly, preach, I feel like you couldn't have said it better there. And it really has. I, yeah, it definitely blows my mind and taking a look at policy and those types of things. I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, who's, who's the system advocating for? Well, I know who the system at large seems to be advocating for. And in my opinion, it's not the victim. Um, And we've seen really crazy things happen that prove that point in ways that are uh, almost unbelievable. Um, I will say this. Uh, I'm a social worker. I went to the same school as some of my counterparts at the Department of Health and Welfare. I was in class with some of them. Um, I know what we learned together and it just isn't happening. And I hear lots of complaints and concerns from some social workers at the department that, that this just isn't what they were trained. And I get that. Um, but it's the policy and procedure of the agency for which they work. Um, and it's also the law in some places uh, that really just doesn't, doesn't seem to care about keeping children safe. That's not I can't say that. It's not that they don't care about it. It's just that's not <laughs> what the focus seems to be. Um, yeah. And so uh, I will say that a lot of the department workers are just truly the most amazing human beings. And they do this completely impossible job. Uh, and they work mm-hmm. so hard and care. And uh, they have there's. I don't know, a hundred times more organized than I am to get as much done as they do. (laughs) Amazing human beings. But then like in every job, there are uh, workers that are not good. And the vast majority of workers are somewhere in the middle, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But it's the ones that uh, I feel like um, uh, really do a disservice to the victims and even the families. truly dangerous like these these are really life and death circumstances for some of these children and um i i would wish that we could hold people to a higher standard you know across the board. yeah do you have you you know have to be very careful but do you have any vague examples that you can give regarding some of these situations that are happening that you feel like are not advocating in the children's best interest 
Um, I have a couple. So, of course, I would never mention names, but um, some of these are very um, common. So I could say it and <laughs> there'd be too many to name. Um, yeah. We, I think often the child is not believed. And our in, at our program, at the Third District Guardian and Lightroom program, our goal is to always start by believing the child. Now, we could be proven wrong. So we, we believe them, but we verify. And um, in the verification process, sometimes um, what they said ends up not being true, but almost always it is true. Uh, it is almost unheard of for a child to falsely accuse someone. And if they do, you, it's, it's almost laughably obvious. You will hear the other parents' words come out of their mouth. And it's, you know, they'll use words they couldn't possibly understand. They Mm -hmm. um, use, they say the same exact quote over and over. Like it's, you know, so we always start by believing. And, and so often, and one of the times that seems to be a real problem for a lot of agencies to really believe is if a child reports um, sexual abuse or sexual assault in the home, because sometimes, and it's for the same reasons um, that domestic violence happens, sometimes the mom will say, um, no, she's the problem, um, or he would never, and she didn't. And it all turns back on the victim, this poor child, who has simply said what was happening in her life. So that's a tough one. And, and sometimes um, agencies that she tells also don't believe her. And it's, we, it's, it's uh, one of the really challenging ones for us. Um, another one uh, was a gentleman um, who was a domest- domestic violence perpetrator, was assigned to go to group. Um, and it's a 52-week um course and it they the studies have shown that the 52 week course is really the only one that has any uh real ability to mark some changes so um he got kicked out twice uh, they have a very high level that you have to participate with you can't miss class that kind of thing so he's kicked mm-hmm. out twice but the worker <laughs> wanted to add the two the number of groups he attended both times he got kicked out to equal Oh. the full course. We were like, well, that's, that's not how therapy works. <laughs> that's right. Not okay. So we had to bring that to everyone's attention. Like, well, I, I think that that is a serious issue that he can't complete this class and shouldn't be rewarded um, by saying he passed Absolutely it. Not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, another time there were 11 people in a rental house and in in my past, I've uh, been a property manager and I was saying no landlord is okay with 11 people in a very small three bedroom with however many dogs they had. And so I was saying, this is by its nature, unstable housing. Mm -hmm. And um, the worker was saying, nope, it's fine. Um, I've talked to who they said the property manager is. I'm like, it doesn't sound exactly legit, but okay. Um, and so we kept kind of arguing that this is it. Once the landlord finds out, um, then all 11 of these people will be needing 
uh, alternate housing. Um, and the worker wanted to return the children in that circumstance. Um, yeah, maybe not the best idea. No. And then the last, <laughs> the last one is um, a mom was driving with her child. She had an extraordinarily high blood alcohol level, so high that if you or I had it, we would, we would be in the hospital. We would be, we would have alcohol poisoning, which means that she uh, drank in excess uh, regularly all the time to keep her alcohol level that high and still function in any way at all. And, uh, and then they wanted to return the child saying um, that things had changed now, even though it was going to be in the same house, but now they were going to give um, another person in the household care and control of the child. Um, and she was going to, and she was uh, clean now. And we're like, she can't be, she hasn't gone to seek help, which means she can't step down from an alcohol level that high. Um, alcoholics can't step down from alcohol like that. It would, they would die. So we were yes. like, it's just the same circumstance. So this whole push to return children, um, in, in those cases, in some of those cases, we might have been okay, but we, it's our system doesn't give us a chance to look at the long run and to make real life changes for people. It gives us time to put a Band-Aid on things and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is these are children's lives we're talking about, and a Band-Aid isn't good enough in, in my opinion, but that is how the system is set up at this point. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the idea that a lot of times social workers will return children home kind of with the expectation that something else will happen that will remove them from the home permanently? You know, I, I can't, speak to that exactly. I'm not in that position. Thank goodness. I, I will say that um, their minimum standards are so minimum and some workers are very diligent about returning children home uh, with the most minimal of progress or even no progress. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that there's an unspoken reward system for quick reunifications as opposed to child safety or real change wrought within this family. So I, I'm sure they must have seen sometimes when we saw it, that this was doomed, that this could not possibly work. No, nothing had changed. Um, right. But the hows and whys of them uh, feeling the need sometimes to do that, I I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. And that's obviously not the standpoint that you approach things from. No. Which you've, you've made very clear, but I just wondered if you had any sort of opinion on that. So I think that answered my question. Um, so moving in a little bit to the family first movement that you discussed, and I know we got into this a little bit more earlier, but I'd love for you to expand on it, um, what it is, what your take on it is as a general system. Well, so there's 
Um, a relatively new act that is being implemented into practice uh, right now. Um, you know, once once a law gets passed, it takes a while to get things organized yeah. to follow that. And it is the, the Family First Act. Mm -hmm. And basically what that is supposed to be is what if we could keep children from being removed from their homes by offering preventative services, especially in the areas of uh, mental health or substance abuse that bring children into care. And that mm -hmm. sounds fantastic, but I think what now that the policy is being put into practice, it looks more like how can we keep these kids uh, in their home, um, even if it's not the safest environment or a safe environment that there's right. such a push to just not ever take the kids into care. And personally, I will say that um, I am thankful for every child that is in care because I know how hard it is to be brought into care. And I know that that is supposed to be the safe place for you. And this is where you're supposed to get help. So um I, I don't see that as a failure uh, necessarily. I'm sure sometimes it is, but generally I see that as a protective thing and an opportunity for people to get help and an opportunity uh, for this child to have a better outcome uh, than, than yeah. this child typically would have. So I'm really reticent of things that say a child can be in a, a potentially very dangerous situation um, while we work through preventative stuff. I seems like a disaster would, waiting to happen. <laughs> it, and it often is, you know, and we're worried as this happens more and more that, that children could be, you know, potentially really hurt. I would love yeah. to see this preventative be more of a cultural or societal preventative um, that would be really preventing the problem, preventing the things that make child abuse and neglect more likely for right. everyone than to go into situations where it has already occurred and then say we're preventing it. Yeah. 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 And we'll have to wait and see. You know, it's early and it's possible that uh, it's all going to work out great. Uh, I got to leave space for that to happen mm -hmm. and hope that that is how that's going to happen and try to tuck my worries and concerns in a little bit more and just yeah. see where we go and, and know that we're going to continue to do um, strong advocacy. Our, our worry really is we do not get involved in these cases unless the child um, is brought into care. Mm -hmm. And if these children aren't brought into care, we'll never know about them. We cannot advocate for these children. And I, so I, I feel like that m might put them at additional risk, not having someone that's just there for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have our concerns, um, but we'll, we have no choice, but to let yeah. it sort of play out and, and hope for the best. And then if the best doesn't happen if children aren't safe. Unfortunately, um, we'll all hear about it. Um, right. You know, when children are killed in care um, or are um, 
killed before they get into care. The, the, you know, it makes the news. I keep thinking of the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. And as I watched that documentary, I was thinking, oh yeah, I'm sure that that's not an unusual thing. I, not that it happens all the time, but it's just, you know, that I'm sure has happened, uh, to different children in different places. That was not a, a one-off no. um, for, for a baby. And, and that's just something that we worry about and fight over in our minds yeah. regularly. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a tricky situation. Um, so moving into your work at the NAMPA Family Justice Center, how do you feel oh. that it influences the work that you do um, for the foster care system or vice versa? Oh, um, well, in both places, I'm, I'm dealing with um, domestic violence. So domestic violence isn't an incident that happens. It is a, it is a lifestyle that happens. It is a, uh, a, like a slow rolling train that sometimes also barrels down the tracks. So mm-hmm. these children who live in homes where there's domestic violence, I deal with those children as adults in my work. Right. And I deal with the adults that are in the domestic violence relationship. And then I, at, uh, with my guardian work, I, I work with the child victims. So there's a, they have a terrible prognosis. If you're a child that grows up in a household where there's domestic violence, you have about a 50, 50 chance of if you are male growing up to perpetrate domestic violence. And if you're a female growing up to be the victim of domestic violence, because that is, those are terrible odds. Um, And it's because that's uh, what was modeled for you. And that's what you become comfortable with Mm -hmm. because you understand it. Not that you like it. Of course you don't, but it's what you understand. And so anything other than that feels foreign and maybe even a little scary for you. So, um, one of the things that sometimes is misunderstood is that maybe we're, you know, coming in after an event and, uh, you know, it's too late to close the barn door. All the horses have already escaped, mm-hmm. but I don't see it that way. I, we have come in after an event in both cases, both when I'm working with um, women who've been victimized and with children who've been victimized. But here's the thing. That's not the only time they're going to be victimized. Uh-huh. Um, if you if you're in a household with domestic violence, this one incident wasn't the only incident. It wasn't the first incident. It won't be the last incident. And it, every incident you uh, survive uh, makes uh, an imprint in you that says this is how life is. And so what I see that we're able to do in both places is say no. That's that's not how life has to be. And there are ways to uh, change what you think and what you do and what you feel to uh, make you uh, able to have a better, different life, both for those women and for the children. And that's what, so I see us also as a preventative because we are preventing that lifestyle. We are preventing future events, um, I, I really feel very hopeful about both 
of my jobs. <laughs> um, both of the populations I work with, I feel very hopeful that um, when you have someone advocating for you that believes in you, that's giving you the information you need um, and, and supporting you, then I just feel strongly that big changes for the positive can be made in your life. And if, if you're just trying to weather this storm by yourself, I think it makes that much more difficult or almost impossible. Yeah. So victim blaming is a really hot topic right now. And do you feel like our policies and society encourages that? Um, yeah, certainly a cultural thing. I, uh, I've heard, um, from, um, the, the, a mom that was uh, in a domestic violence situation that the, um, attorney, um, said something to her, um, about, uh, well, you must've really liked it since you stayed. Oh, good. And that happened, uh, a month ago, maybe. So like today it happened. Yeah. And uh, there's no excuse for that. We know better. Um, that is willful ignorance and victim blaming and, and uh, very much sexist yeah. um, behavior. So, and we definitely do that with children, you know, um, just as it's very, rare that a woman falsely accuses a man of sexual assault. Um, it is very rare that a child accuses someone of abuse or neglect. They have no, children have no reason yeah. to come forward because it's almost always someone in their family and they understand the repercussions of that. Yeah, well, um, it's usually evident women. by how they still just love these people regardless of what well, they've done. Well, absolutely. And so we had one case where there was um, five children and they were originally brought in for a dirty house, a real dirty house that had lice for four years, dirty house. Oh my goodness. Um, and of course I kept thinking the system really failed them because they went to school for four years with lice and no one thought, huh, like kids can get lice. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you're in a softball and you all share that helmet and, you know, kids are kids, they share hats right. and hairbrushes and stuff. It just happens. But for four years, that's and it was crazy. So, uh, and people kept trying to work with her and help the, the mom. Um, but at no point were they like, okay, but four years. So these kids were brought in for that and they kept saying, um, you know, everything was fine at home. They wanted to go home. Eventually, after months, it started to come out what was happening. And mm -hmm. um, the older boy was being blamed for being the bad kid. But actually, he was trying to keep his younger siblings from being beaten by her, which would make her so mad, she'd kick him out and he'd run the streets because he had no home. And then he was getting a reputation as the bad kid who runs the streets um, and one thing led to another and it, um, the judge eventually uh, referred to it as torture. Wow. But those children for months wanted to stay there. And that's why I think these cases have to be dealt with so individually. And you have to have someone who can 
really get to know these children and really work for them and listen around what they tell you as well as to what they tell you. Mm-hmm. And if you have a volunteer on the case, um, I think that that makes that much more likely to happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you think, you know, oftentimes foster parents' voices are not heard, right? And they can say, well, you know, little Johnny has said X, Y, and Z, and they're doing these behaviors, and that's all highly overlooked sometimes, even though the (laughs) foster parent is the one who's spending so much time with the child and has generally gained their trust, right? Exactly. What are your thoughts on that too? Well, so um, self-disclosure here, when I was a foster parent, and and that's not exactly fair, when my family was a foster family, because this was a family affair, of course, Mm -hmm. um, I really had trouble with that. Um, You might have realized in the last however long we've been talking that I'm a fairly opinionated person. Um, That makes two of us. (laughs) 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 and I have lots of thoughts on things um Mm -hmm. and and I wanted to share because I was I was that person that was with that child 24 7 basically yeah and there was no way to do that and it was so frustrating and I thought it was so dangerous I was like who are you listening to it's certainly not the person who's here every day um yeah so uh, that's when I started uh, volunteering as a guardian ad litem and okay. stopped being a foster parent. It was, uh, frankly, just too much for me um, to be a foster parent and not have a voice. So the beautiful thing about a guardian ad litem is they can help you express your voice. So we've had foster parents write um, letters or um, we were working with one of our judges on a foster parent report, which is just a really short four question informational that foster parents can um, go ahead and submit to the court directly. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we're not here to advocate for the foster parent either. We're here to advocate for the child. We think that the foster parent is another person who can and does advocate for the child. Yeah, And our system does this crazy thing. So it's, you know, it's all about families right now. And, and so what they like to do is also put children in kinship or um, Mm -hmm. fictive kin care. Well, so sometimes that's, that's great. Um, And again, you know, we have to go case by case. Sometimes that's not great. And, but what they do, I think is pretty unrealistic. So we, uh, there's one case I'm thinking of right now, but Um, They have the children with the grandmother Mm -hmm. and the grandmother has watched her child devolve into uh, drugs and alcohol over a a decade. Mm -hmm. And that parent is frustrated and frightened for their child and their grandchildren. So the department has put the children in her care, but when she becomes when she doesn't tow the company line and, and uh, is frustrated or angry or sad about her child and how they're caring for the children, then the department wants to negate her opinion saying, you know, that's because she's the grandma. I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways. She can't be the caretaker because she's the grandma and not listen to because she's the grandma. Right. 
Yeah. So, and that happens a lot with kinship care. And, and if we're going to say we're here for the family, then maybe we should listen to them. Yes, totally. So, yeah, I, gosh, I'm, I feel very validated by you right now. So <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but also you're just giving so much information that is awesome. I, it is very interesting. I feel like, you know, personally, I've kind of gotten slapped on the wrist quite a bit for advocating for the child in my home. Mm -hmm. And that makes no sense to me when that's supposed to be my job. I agree because sometimes when you're advocating, um, you're not saying what people want to hear. And we get slapped on the wrist a lot for that too. Um, uh, I've gotten a slap on the wrist um, from a department worker for something I posted on my personal Facebook. Pretty weird. Um, Because when I'm just saying my truth right now um, and what's happened in my experience, what I have seen and what my program does, that doesn't mean I speak for all guardians everywhere or all master social workers everywhere. I don't. I'm just speaking for me. And um, what I'm saying uh, might not be the truth for everybody, even other people in my exact position. Um, that's up to them. But when I, and I was once told, uh, by a very important person that I was advocating too loudly oh. and I, I cannot uh, wrap my mind around how one does that. I, I don't know that there's too loud of an advocacy um, for children who have been abused or neglected by their parents. Yeah. that's ridiculous. These are children who truly have nothing and no one, they don't have parents or family to protect them. They need all the protection um, and all the advocacy that they can get. And obviously you want to be professional and polite and respectful, but I think that's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm positive you've been wrapped on the knuckles. Um, <laughs> if you said something that didn't go along with the narrative of um, family focus. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, but I think, I think we owe it to these children and to ourselves to operate on the truth, not what we want to be the truth or hope to be the truth or should be the truth, but what really is happening, because that's where we can help children and families. I think we do everyone such a disservice. I've seen children go home to families who have actively said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I could handle all of these children right now. So what are we doing? Giving them their children. Don't do that. They, they're telling you they can't. Yeah. Um, we had one poor mom who really wanted to relinquish her child and was not allowed to do that for a long period of time. Um, and I think if people are telling you that they cannot, then I think we say, well, do you want us to help? There's things we can do to help you. Right. But eventually I think we have to respect that they know themselves and their limitations. And, 
And I think we do just a great disservice. And ultimately, we're doing a great disservice, not to just the people in these cases, but to all of society, because these children grow up. And what we have taught them by not listening to them yes. is that uh, authority sucks and doesn't know, have your best interest in heart, knows nothing mm -hmm. about you and doesn't care. So we're sending out people, uh, now adults, in, into a world with that feeling. Mm -hmm. They also feel uh, worthless. They might self-medicate. There's some really great statistics about having a guardian ad litem and then children who do not have one. So having a CASA or a guardian ad litem makes it half as likely that a child will be returned into care. Oh. Because they had someone advocating for them and that we've, you know, all the studies that have shown that one positive person in your life can make it such a big difference. That guardian ad litem can be that one person that shows them and, and makes a positive difference for them in that moment that they can then run with, go forward, find other positive people. But you can't do that if you've never had a positive person, if you don't know one exists. So 50% uh, chance, less chance that you will be re-abused or re-neglected and brought back into care. That's a huge statistic. The statistics show yeah. things like um, a child with a guardian ad litem is eight times more likely to graduate high school. Oh my gosh. And about 43% less likely to have contact um, with law enforcement while they're in care. So and that is huge because the statistics on kids who like don't graduate high school and run into law enforcement while they're in care are astronomical. Astronomical. And if you don't graduate high school, if you have contact with law enforcement, um, and if you go into this world knowing in your heart that no one cares about you or will help you, um, and that despair and anger that that leads to, we are creating that culture and that society. And yeah. we don't have to. <laughs> there, there are things and people and programs in place to try to really help in the long run, not just today with this problem. You know, Rachel was talking about if a child was brought into care for a dirty house, well, dirty houses don't just happen. There's other things happening to create that dirty house. Um, yeah. So typically it's drugs or alcohol, but not always, or mental illness. Yes. And if those, if you just clean up the house, I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched hoarders, but they hoard yeah. again, right? So, right. Um, because it's a mental illness. And if you don't actually deal with it, it just happens again. But if yeah. we take the time and energy and if we care enough um, to say, let's actually handle the problem. Right. Not the Band-Aid fix. But the problem. It just is better for everyone and our whole society and culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so powerful. Well, I think, you know, when you're dealing with children, you're dealing with, um, you know, their past and their present, but honestly, they're very long, I hope, powerful future. Yeah. And um, God bless them. They're resilient creatures, but we got to give them something to work with here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I know. I feel like foster kids get such a bad rap and it's like, what do you expect? 
<laughs> like not just from mm-hmm. their past, but also how we set them up for their future. Exactly. And it's trauma. Um, we yeah. don't address the trauma of this. So, so most foster children will have five social workers and five placements. So foster homes. And what happens is, so clearly these children were very traumatized, usually over a long period of time Mm -hmm. um, to be brought into care, but then removing them from their home is traumatic. I mean, I, I can't imagine just like Christina, you're going to go live with your neighbors across the street. Um, What? Uh, Yeah. So that's traumatic. And then um, the trauma of, so they establish some, some bonds with their first foster parent or in foster family. So they get to know the kids and the parents and what's for dinner and what the schedule is and what their bedroom looks like and who the pets are and the neighbor kids and the school and uh, they probably go to a, a therapist. I couldn't be a bigger fan of therapy for these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that changes and it happens again and again and again and again. And while that's happening, they had a social worker that brought them into care. Um, it's called their safety worker, right? So the, uh, the safety assessor is the one that determines that they will be brought into care unless they're brought into care by the police. Um yeah as in imminent danger. And that's the vast majority of cases where children are brought in by the police. Um, Okay. And so they, they're brought in by that person. That person does um, some history. They figure out maybe a potential placement and contacts family members. Then it's passed off to the caseworker who's meant to have the case throughout until the case goes to permanency for the child. And permanency mm-hmm. is either reunification, adoption, or guardianship. Um, but typically, because turnover is so high, I, mean, I remember yeah. Rachel saying she made it four months and that that's not mm-hmm. unheard of, that they typically have uh, at least three of those. So then what's yeah. lost to this child, of course, is that one person, but also someone that that knows them over time. So sees them either start to bloom and blossom or really slide. Um, But a guardian can be that person. We are meant to stay on that case as as one person from the very beginning to the very end. So we can tell you, boy, this child has come miles since uh, they've been in care. And that is so crucial because truth be told, like nobody looks back at all the paperwork from the beginning. Like when this goes to court three years after the kid's been in care, nobody's paying any attention to how the kid has progressed or how the case has progressed. It's just the last review period. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, they don't have time. We, we heard poor Rachel, you work till 11, you're back at work <laughs> at eight and you're somehow supposed to get all work that schedule, but only work 40 hours at the same time. You don't have time yeah. to be reading all this reports. And, and again, this, the department is a bureaucracy. That's, I mean, it's just a fact. It just is. Um, yeah. And bureaucracies can be good for some things, but are not known for making things happen uh, quickly. So yeah. um, they, they just have a lot of meetings. They, they have to discuss so many things um, and in keeping up with all of it. I, I just, I don't think there's any way a human could do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. That was a lot to unpack. 
um, but this has been seriously so incredible. I, I want to finish with one question for you. All right. Um, what advice would you offer to someone who's thinking about becoming a guardian ad litem? I would say, so what you're going to hear from people is I can't do that. Um, that would just be too hard for me. And mm-hmm. here is my thought on that. Um, once people begin with us that, you know, actually complete the training and start, what they find um, is that they feel very empowered. And this is what I get out of that is we all know that these terrible things are happening and doing nothing about them or feeling we can do nothing about them, I think really weakens us, but feeling like every day you're doing something about it empowers us in so many ways. And I'll also say this, if we weren't doing it, there's literally no one else that would be. So even if I'm only doing, you know, a, a B job, I'm not doing an A plus job. It's just a solid B of a job. Uh, that's a uh, hundred times more than would be happening for this child without that. So um, what we find again is that people um, feel like they're making a difference in a child's life. And I honestly can't think of anything more powerful than that. Um, yeah. I'd like to tell you just real quickly why I went into this, this work of speaking for others, if I, if I could. Yeah, absolutely. So I came from uh, a home in which there was both domestic violence and child abuse, namely of me. And there was this one instance in particular in which um, I was getting a beating and it, we were by uh, the lake um, in the evening, like right after dinner, there was so many people around um, and everyone's windows were open. Um, and I, you might also have gathered from this conversation, I'm a, a loud person. So what I decided to do is uh, scream about it, which I normally didn't do. Normally I'd take okay. my beatings in silence um, as most children have a tendency to do because it just sort of lights the fire if if you add to the chaos and the emotions. So, uh, but this time I said, no, I'm, I let it out. I let it all out. I screamed, I cried, I carried on. We went back in the house and I had bruises and welts and cuts from the belt wrapping around from my shoulders to my knees. My goodness. And nobody said anything. While I carried on outside, no one came. When I went inside and my grandparents were there, they didn't say anything. I was getting madder and madder. So for the next week or two, I just wore my swimsuit everywhere. So you could not help but notice these welts and bruises and cuts. And not one person ever said or did anything. And that really profoundly changed me. My epiphany was you're in this world alone. No one will help you. And that (laughs) is a terrible thing for a kiddo. And I feel like 
basically all we work with feel that. And what came of that for me was um, that I want to be that person that is there for them and to help them and to speak for them. So that's my overreaching why. And I think that um, we can do that for children. We can be the person who cares and helps and speaks for them. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. It's not a happy story, but um, I think it led to a happy ending because I have to say in the course of time, um, you know, our little program has helped so many children. And in my life, I hope I've helped uh, so many children and then so many women who are in power and control relationships. Uh, I just want to make sure people have an opportunity for a strong healthy, happy future. And I feel like that will also lead to a strong, healthy, happy world in my little way. Amen. I think Amen. you are so right. And I just appreciate you sharing all of this so much. I can't thank you enough. I admire you from here to the moon. <laughs> well, everything I want to say do. thank you for what you do. Thank you for being a foster parent. Thank you for, for putting on this podcast. And uh, every child that you touch is better for it. And their world will be better for it. So thank you for what you do. Well, I appreciate that. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. I so truly appreciate it. What What do you have to promote? How can... How can we help you? How can people find you? Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can go on and learn more about us at um, thirddistrictguardian.org. And it gives you a lot of information about guardian ad litem programs and then our program specifically. And um, it's interesting to note that though we are um, mandated uh, that that a child under 12 in Idaho um, is required to have a uh, advocate assigned to them when they're in foster care and we fulfill that function um, that we are not fully funded so uh, we go out into the world with our little bowl asking for people to donate to mm -hmm. us so we can keep doing this good work mm -hmm. and of course we appreciate donations and we uh, need a, a lot of additional volunteers. So uh, if you have any interest in volunteering or donating to us, that would be wonderful. If you don't live anywhere near us, I bet there's a guardian ad litem or a CASA program near you that could also use your support. So I urge you to um, come see us at thirddistrictguardian.org or go on to the National CASA Association website and you can find a program near you. I love that so much. Thank you. Ew. This has been fun. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh. I appreciate you so much for doing this. This has been amazing. <laughs> I still feel like my mind is just kind of blown at some of the things you've said. <laughs> and truthfully, it still is blown at that entire conversation. I am so grateful to have had Christina on the podcast and extra thankful for all of you who have been tuning in and listening every week 
This has been a blast to get off the ground. I can't believe we already have four episodes and I am excited to continue bringing you more. Have a great rest of your day.